You're listening to a sermon podcast from Church at the Gates, where we desire for real people to meet the real Jesus and experience real change. We pray that God might use the next few minutes to draw you closer to Him. All right, Isaiah, we're going to be in the book of Isaiah. You're going to grab your copies of God's Word. We're going to go to, eventually, Isaiah 60. Verses 2 and 3. So that's where we will kind of land towards the end of our sermon, our time together. Uh, Isaiah 60. I want to talk about today the danger of hope. I want to talk about the danger of hope this morning. I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about hope. I think, uh, yeah, there was this movie in the mid-90s. It became one of my favorite. I watched it as a young man, maybe uh, high school, early college, the Shawshank Redemption. That's right. It's a great movie, all of you young adults who haven't seen it. Uh, and it centers around this guy named Andy Dufresne, and he is convicted, wrongly convicted, of a murder he, didn't, he did not commit, and so he goes to jail, meets a guy named Red, and Red is a guy who's been in there in jail for a long time, and he'll be in jail for a long time more, and he's kind of like the wise older man. He befriends Andy, and they begin to have a good friendship, and early on in Andy's incarceration, uh, he has hope of maybe an overturned conviction or a hope of, uh, of, of being able to get out of prison. And so they're having this conversation around the lunch table. And Andy is, 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 is somewhat excited about the possibility, the possibility of hope that what happened to him doesn't have to be static. He's planning on finding a way out. And Red, the, the, his uh, Morgan Freeman. <laughs> All right. He looks across the table and says to Andy, let me tell you something, my friend. Hope is a dangerous thing. Hope can drive a man insane. You know, for a prisoner, I imagine he's not wrong. That hope is good maybe early on, but that a conviction could be overturned or that there was a way to escape or whatever it is. Hope, hope deferred makes the heart sick is what the Proverbs say. That at some point, hoping can be naive and disappointing. What Red is saying is, listen, don't hope, Andy. Accept your position. Accept your position as static and unchanging. Accept your fate. You're gonna die here. Better to be real than to have hope. Hope can be a dangerous thing. Like, how many of us have put our hopes in things that have eventually let us down? Like a sports team. Or a church. How many of us have put our hopes in a person and been let down? A political leader, a teacher, a mentor, a pastor. You stick around long enough, I'm going to disappoint you too. That's a guarantee of life, guarantee of life. How many of us have put our hopes in our own abilities, in our own health, in our own talents, and eventually been let down and betrayed by life? And look, many times we, we pass off hope as naivete, and certainly hope can be naive. And yet, like, if we're honest, we live in a world that is so broken and so corrupt, in a world that is so... Um, so destitute that we understand why cynicism exists. 
why hope, hope is hard and cynicism is so easy. We live in this broken world. Too many disappointments lead us to a cynical view of life. Mark Dever, the, the theologian pastor in, in Washington, D.C., uh, says this about the cynic. He says, the cynic smells flowers but always assumes it's for a funeral. That's pretty good, right? It's pretty good. The cynic always assumes the worst of everything. And in a world rife with disappointment, Christians are meant to have a hope in God who never disappoints. So what does it look like for us to live in that tension? To live in a broken world, to live with disappointment all around us, unmet expectations, hurts? How do we cultivate hope in the God who never slumbers, never sleeps, and always keeps his promises? I have a question this morning. I want you to noodle over and think about. Do I trust God enough to have hope in his promises? You see, hope follows trust that you give trust to something and then hope follows that. Any sports fan knows that. You're trusting your team with some hope. Do I trust God enough to have hope in his promises? Do I have question about God's ability to save? Do I question God's love for me or his ability to provide for my family? Do I question God's desire to see sin rooted out of my life? Do I question God's ability to get rid of brokenness? Do I believe the resurrection actually brings power to my life? Has life taught me that hope is only and always dangerous? Hope is one of the prominent themes in the book of Isaiah. And it's, it's centered in the person and work of the coming Messiah. What we see in the book of Isaiah is that if you trust God, hope then follows based on the character of who God is, what he said, what his promises are. You can hope in a future. John Piper writes, our hope in God isn't just a wish or a daydream, but a sure confidence that what God says will happen, will happen. In other words, the object of our hope matters a ton. Like, no kidding, people and things and places and institutions let us down. They can't hold the weight of our hope. Only one thing can. What John Piper is saying is, listen, if we trust in God, we'll never be dismayed. What he says will happen, will happen. So what I want to do is I want to introduce the book of Isaiah, which is our first foray into the prophets of the Old Testament. We're doing this, book, uh, this, uh, this sermon series, Every Book for All of Life, where we take one, uh, one book a week and kind of tease it out, outline it, and, and talk about how it like, relates to us today. So I want to introduce the book of Isaiah. It's a major prophet. I want to talk a little bit about how to read prophecy uh, so we can kind of at least understand what's happening. Uh, and then I want, to, I, want to give, I, want to, I want to kind of illustrate the problem of the book of Isaiah that he's looking to solve, and then the solution he offers, and then two quick takeaways at the end. So, quickly, who wrote the book of Isaiah? You guys are one for one. Great job. Isaiah's Isaiah's prophetic uh, work happens over four kings, which is a decent amount of work. It's Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Uh, when was Isaiah written? Around 720 B.C., we think. Uh, in, that, uh, in that time frame, it was before the Assyrian and Babylonian exile. And, and really, Isaiah is meant to warn. It serves as another warning from God. Hey, if you don't repent, judgment is coming. 
Whatever you think about God in the Old Testament, and one of the common ones is here is a capricious God who is fast to anger and who can't wait to smite people with lightning bolts from the sky. There is nothing in the Old Testament that would be farther from the truth about who God is. He is long-suffering, he is patient, he is slow to anger, but his justice will come. And so we see Isaiah as a warning sign for Israel. What is the structure of Isaiah? Basically, roughly, it's chapters 1 through 39, and that is judgment is coming. Chapters 40 through, 40, 40 through 66, hope is coming. Prophetically, the book kind of tracks with history. It's a little jumbled at a couple points, but it really deals with Israel's faithlessness and God's justice and grace with Israel. So why is the book of Isaiah important? The book of Isaiah displays mankind's need for salvation and the coming hope of the, man, of the Messiah. In other words, when you read Isaiah and you see all that Israel struggles with and you see how God has, has really condemned them for their actions, it really almost and often is a mirror into our own souls. That we read who Israel is, we're meant to understand that we're more often Israel than we'd like to admit. We get the best picture in the Old Testament of what Jesus, the Messiah, is to look like. And we'll look at that a little bit later. We see that God is a perfect and gracious judge. So when you read the book of Isaiah, and you should, you should find yourself convicted of sin. And you should find yourself pushed into trusting the coming Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. So with all of that, I want to talk about prophecy just for a second. Because depending on your church background, depending on kind of where you come from or what, what lineage of Christianity, or if you know any of that, pro, like the prophetic books can be a wild, wild west of fun and craziness. But so let me just give you like three, uh, three ways that we understand who prophets are and what they do. Uh, prophets are messengers from God. They're often ignored by Israel and they speak in Hebrew poetry or they write in Hebrew poetry. So messengers from God. Uh, in the Old Testament, prophets are foretelling the words of God, not just foretelling. That is, we understand prophecy almost as like astrology. And so a modern day prophet might just say, here's gonna be your future. That's not really how Old Testament prophecy worked. Uh, what it was, was these people who had a genuine, vivid experience with God, a dynamic experience with God, and they spoke his truth to Israel. More often than not, 99.9% .9 of all of the prophecy that is in the Old Testament has to do with Israel being sinful and rebellious and the prophet telling them this and telling them to come back to God. That is the essence of Old Testament prophecy in a nutshell. That when you see them, they're saying, listen, Israel, here's the covenant you made. Here's what you're actually doing. God's asking you to come back to the covenant. If you don't, judgment's coming. That is essentially prophecy in the Old Testament. They do speak about future times, about the end times uh, in Revelation and all of that. In fact, if you want to understand Revelation, the best place to start understanding it is in all the prophets. Like, don't start reading Revelation chapter 1. It won't help you much. Start in the prophets and you'll start to understand how those images in Revelation came to be. And so it's less about life circumstances, prophecy in the Old Testament, and more about their holiness and their rebellion against God. Okay? Second thing, often, often these prophets were ignored by Israel. And what's interesting too is they were often, prophets were often used as like object lessons. Hosea, God made Hosea marry a prostitute to illustrate uh, Israel's unfaithfulness. Ezekiel, uh, God, made, God made Ezekiel make bread over a pile of poop. Uh, in chapter 21 or 20 of Isaiah, he tells Isaiah, I want you to go preach judgment naked. 
I want to be that guy. The point is, there was a point to that, though. It was to show them how, how vulnerable and naked they were before the Lord. And so often, often the message of the prophet wasn't things are going to go really well. It was repent or judgment is coming, which is why often they were ignored. And they wrote in Hebrew poetry. Much of the prophets is written in Hebrew poetry, which throws us for a loop because we love Romans and Galatians with its prose and therefores and, and, and all of these things that are so easy to track. And you get to, I don't know, any of the chapters of Isaiah and you're saying, I don't know what's happening here. If you feel that way, that's okay. Hebrew poetry is not so easy to, to track with. But to understand Isaiah, you have to lean into that. You can't ignore it. It's worth the time to discern and understand. So that is, uh, that is a prophecy in a nutshell. There's more to it, but I wanna, I wanna kind of give us a framework to work with as we go through more of the prophets. So what is the problem that Isaiah is writing or that God is using Isaiah to communicate to Israel, it's this. You are trusting in other things. This is the problem of Israel, that they have a season, and they're cyclical really with Israel, that, that they are trusting in things other than the Lord. They've turned away from their covenant with him. They've turned away uh, from genuine worship of him, and they're living outside of the way that God has commanded. In other words, God sent Isaiah to command the people to repent. And he actually told Isaiah, listen, Hey, when you start to preach, it's actually going to get worse. Your message is going to harden them because they already hate me. And so when they hear more of this call to repent and more of this conviction, they're actually going to do the opposite of what we hope. They're actually going to turn their hearts away from me further. And so I want to look at three areas briefly of where we see the prophet Isaiah really teasing out rebellion for the Israelites. Number one, they trusted in religious practices. That we see the Israelites trusting in religious practices to keep them in step with or in good graces with the Lord. They trusted in religious practice. I want to read this passage from uh, Isaiah chapter 1. And this is, this is in the very first chapter. It's the opening salvo of God saying, here's the problem with Israel. And he says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination. New moon and Sabbath are the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. It's so interesting. At the very beginning of this, he says, listen. All those rams, all those bulls, all the pigeons, all the sacrifice, all the, the trappings of worship that you've brought to the temple, they are an affront to me, and I hate them. All the singing. All of these, like, I hate your solemn assemblies. What you're saying is, I hate your, 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 your fake repentance. I hate that when you come and you cry out before me, the, 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 the fakeness of your worship. New Testament, what we call this is called the whitewashed tombs. It's people who look good on the outside, but on the, on the inside are empty. What, what God is saying is, listen, there is a massive problem of hypocrisy in Israel. That you say one thing and you do another. 
Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination. Your feasts, they've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. The thing that Israel tried to please God with became the thing that was proof of their rejection. Their worship was tainted with self-glorification. Their sacrifices were tainted with arrogance and pride. And the giving, their generosity was covered by boasting. God saw through the thin veneer of their perfunctory religiosity and obedience. They came to look good. This is what we do. I'm going to be a good Israelite. I'm going to do these things on Sabbath. I'm going to do these things during the week. I'm going to go offer these sacrifices, but my heart is far from him. The lie that Israel believed, this is the lie that Israel believed and that we believe actually often, is that outward obedience is enough to keep God at bay. That God will love me, He'll be pleased with me, or at the very least, he won't send the apocalypse towards me if I have outward obedience. If I go to church on time, if I go to missional community, if I give, if I'm part of this group, if I do all of those things, God will be happy with me. It's like saying, listen, if I have the right bull on Saturday to sacrifice, Sunday through Monday, I can do whatever I want. So long as I give generously, I can treat others however I want. It doesn't take much to transfer that to ourselves. We are a people who long for obedience to be the way that God is pleased with us. Our hearts are law-ish. Many of us look one way on Sunday and totally different during the week. We are convinced that if we give God his two hours on Sunday morning, uh, I mean, it's, we treat God like Advil. My, my life's going bad, so I'm gonna take two hours in, on Sunday and check in with him later. Our weekday lives betray what we actually believe. And actually, this is the point of what God is saying. Is listen, hey, Israel, I can see you in the rest of the week. I don't just see you on the Sabbath. I see you in that, in that dark alley. I see you with that woman there. I see you cheating the poor. I see you cheating the, the foreigner. I see you abusing the orphan. I, just because you have a bull doesn't mean you're okay. I see you for who you are. Just as he rejected Israel's religious expressions, he rejects ours as well. The point isn't perfect worship, but it's worship that flows from a genuine understanding of ourselves and what God has done. The Israelites trusted in their religious practices to bring them close to God or at least keep God at bay. The Babylonians won't come if we sacrifice Lot. Turned out to be wrong. Second thing they trusted in. They trusted in things made by hand. In the Old Testament and New Testament, when you see this, this phrase, made by hand, it is a Jewish metaphor for idols. Why? Because all idols are what? Made by hand. And it's a way to, to, to speak about idols derogatorily. Why? Because it emphasizes they don't have life. It emphasizes they were made by humans. It emphasizes that something made by a human can't be a God. And so in Isaiah 44, he, uh, uh, the, the prophet talks about the uselessness of idolatry. And those who fashion idols, uh, verse 40 or 44, verses 9 and 10, those who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses ne neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Israel has this history. Like, this is what they do. They go to God, and then 
intermarry with the Canaanites, and all of a sudden they're worshiping Yahweh and these other gods. Like they worship Baal. Baal was a god who you primarily worship through temple prostitution. And the goal of that was to compel, was, was to, uh, was to compel Baal to bring rain on your crops so you could have uh, prosperity. Or they worshiped Molech, and, and the way that they worship Molech is through child sacrifice. And, and if I give my child, uh, then I can appease his anger, and I can have prof- profitability in my businesses. Or they worshiped Asherah, which you would, you would, uh, you would sacrifice livestock to appease. Here's the point. Like when faced with an unknown in life, when faced with an unknown situation, they preferred to worship a God they created than the God that created them. That's idolatry at the core, that we we serve a God that we create and not the God who created us. The goal of idol worship is always the same too. It's always to produce what God promised to produce by our own hands. And so we're impatient with God. He didn't produce it at the right time. His promises aren't coming forth. I I feel uneasy about finances or my marriage or whatever. And so I'm going to do something. I'm going to worship an idol that I believe will meet that need that God is not meeting because he's not good enough. In essence, distrust of who God is is at the core of all idolatry. And it's the same for us. When we're drawn to idols, it's because at the core of our soul, we distrust God that there is a lack of trust in an area of our life that we then cultivate an idol in to give our trust. And our idols, you know how they tend to show themselves? When someone starts to mess with an idol, someone starts to say, hey, I don't know if you knew this, back off, that's mine. Or it's explosive anger, or it's intense fear of something being taken away, or it's uncontrolled worry or anxiety about the future. Like idols, when they get rustled around, when someone starts to mess with it or the world knocks into it, you know what happens to you? You become unsettled really quickly because the thing you gave your life to can't actually hold the weight of your life. We may not be sacrificing bulls or visiting temple prostitutes, but we're still making and worshiping idols in our own lives. I wanna give you four questions to be curious about in your life that help kind of surface idolatry. Idolatry is so pernicious and so, uh, <clears throat> so nuanced that if we move too quick through life, we, we miss the idols that need to be torn down in our life. So I want to give you four questions to think about and I, not to condemn, to, to, be, to, to be curious, to ask questions. Why does this exist in my life? Like what, what is beneath here that is producing this idol? So question number one. Uh, what sin or sins do you battle? And, and, and what we mean is, what are the things that have plagued you in life? Maybe it's an excess of worrying. Maybe it's uh, sexual immorality. And maybe it's greed. Maybe it's uh, doubts with money, whatever it is. What sin or sins do you constantly battle? Because what we know is sin is worship the wrong way. It's worshiping something that brings death. So what does, what are these sins? And so what, like instead of them just condemning you there, we're gonna, con, we're gonna confess that they're sin, but then we're gonna ask the next question. Why is this present in my life? Like what underneath here? Why do I like this? What need does this meet in me that I can trust God to meet? What, what function is this serving in my life? Second question, what do you fear losing the most? Family member, ability to provide, health, respect, knowledge, money. Like what is, like what, like what if you didn't, what in your life, if it just disappeared, would cripple you? And like, like I'm a parent. If my kids disappeared, that would cripple me. That doesn't have to be idolatry. I love them deeply. 
But it can be. It can be. God's good gift in any, in any phase can become idolatrous. Number three, what do you spend your time and money on? What do you spend your time and money on? Why is it important to spend your time and money on these things? So we're asking ourselves, okay, if I'm doing this hobby or I'm spending this money all the time, like what is it about these things that provide something for me? I want to be curious about why they exist in my life. Because idolatry is usually a level or two deep. Number four, what do you trust in your life to make, what do you trust to make your life better? What do you trust in? So like we're asking ourselves, okay, when trouble comes, what is my initial coping mechanism? Like, do I go to Shields and buy an AR-15? Amen, right? Like, I don't, like, <clears throat> retail therapy. <sighs> if only. Like, what is it, like, what do I run to when my expectations aren't met? What do I run to? What are the habits I've got? What are the, what are the proclivities for sin? Is it, is it eating? Is it sexuality? Is it, like, what do I grasp onto to make me feel good to make the, uh, the, the bad feelings disappear. Idolatry, here's the thing. Idolatry always overpromises and underdelivers. Which is why when it's taken from you, you feel awful. Because it has promised you, if you give me yourself, this part of your life is taken care of. I can, uh, you can do this fine. You can be comforted. You can be safe. You can always be healthy. You can have what you need. And when it's gone, we realize how fleeting and how fanciful and how wrong it was. It was as true in Israel's time as it was for us now. So they trusted in religious practices. They were perfunctory religious practices. Then they began to, to immerse themselves in idols. And then they trusted in worldly deliverance. Worldly de deliverance. There's a uh, King Hezekiah, the last king Isaiah prophesied with, had, had a couple really good moments. One really good moment is in like chapter 37, where the Assyrians are surrounding Jerusalem, okay? And uh, the Israelites are outnumbered like 50 to 1. I mean, it's, it's going to be a massacre if something doesn't happen. The prophet goes to Hezekiah and says, you need to repent for the nation. You need to come back to the Lord. And he does this. He repents, comes back to the Lord, and says, God, we need you. And you know what happens? The very next day, Assyrians just start dying everywhere. Like, they're all dead. God miraculously intervened to liberate Jerusalem. Literally, two chapters later, two chapters later, King Hezekiah, Assyria is dead. They've been gone now. Uh, the Assyrian nation was on the downfall as they came to Jerusalem anyway. The Babylonian Empire was becoming to prominence. And, and Babylon comes up, up we don't know how much the distance was between this, but it's still King Hezekiah, so it couldn't be too many years. Envoys from Babylon come and say, hey, we're Babylon. And Hezekiah goes, I know you. I don't like you. I'm afraid of you. You're a bunch of pagan nations. Here's what he does. Isaiah 39.2. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure, his house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, uh, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show him. What's interesting, shortly after this, shortly after the Babylonians come, uh, this envoy comes and Hezekiah shows them all that Israel is and has to offer. The, the prophet comes and rebukes Hezekiah for that. Why? Because Hezekiah was looking to curry favor with a pagan country. Here's how great we are. We could partner. I have gold. I've got military. I can't trust God with safety because y'all are, are bad. You're, you guys are ruthless. And so he begins to try to curry favor in a treaty with Babylon by showing him the nation. Despite what had happened two chapters later where Hezekiah humbled himself 
And God showed up miraculously and thousands of Assyrians died at the gates of Jerusalem. Here he is just a few chapters later, offering the kingdom to Babylon. Hezekiah trusted what he could produce, what the Babylonians could produce, more than what he trusted in God's promises. God said, I'll protect you. Hezekiah said, I like the Babylonians better. It's not so foreign to us. We all rely on our own wisdom, our own strength, or the strength and wisdom of others, or our own ability to provide, or others' ability to provide. And you know what happens? In the Christian world, it kind of sounds like this. Uh, we, We do all these things, and we show up, and we work hard, and then at the very end of it, we go, well, I guess all we can do now is pray. Which is just very interesting. Because we believe Uh, that the God who created us created the universe and keeps it spinning with like a word. And if he just lapsed in concern for us, everything would implode. Uh, This is the God who created everything. And and what we do is, hey, listen, we're gonna put all the effort in. And when we've exhausted our infinite abilities, we'll let the God of the universe take over here and see what he can do. Like we all struggle with self-reliance. We all struggle with uh, with the movement away from ourselves. Our trust is often not fully or finally found in God for deliverance. It's usually found in partly God, but whatever else we can produce. The Israelites trusted in their religious practices, in the things they made by hand, and in their own deliverance. They ignored warnings. They ignored opportunities to repent. They ignored God's voice. Isaiah 6, 11 through 13 This is God telling Isaiah what's gonna happen. And he says, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. What he's saying is, listen, you're gonna preach They're gonna reject you and I'm gonna bring like a massive forester. I'm gonna cut down Israel like it's the massive redwood in uh, in the forest and I'm gonna burn and scorch the land around it so much that all that's left is a smoldering hulk of a stump of Israel. That's the message of the first 39 chapters of Isaiah. Amen. So what is the solution? Simply trust in God. So I, I wish I had something more clever. <laughs> but this is always the answer. Always the answer. The first part of the book of Isaiah exposes Israel for who they are and exposes our sin for what it is. The second, uh, the second part of the book invites us to trust in God and the Messiah that is yet to come. Uh, and so what's interesting here is if you put yourself in the, uh, in the, in the shoes of Israel and you're reading this scroll, uh, and in verse three, uh, the, the holy seed is its stump. Here is this this beautiful glimmer of God's hope that you read the book of Isaiah and it is full of images of God's wrath and God's power and God's hatred of sin and yet it is rife and replete and plentiful with God's grace and mercy in vivid pictures. It says, the holy seed is its stump. In other words, what he's saying is, that charred, to Israel he's saying, that charred stump, after all judgment is meted out, after all of the wrath is exuded, and all that's left is a stump of Israel, that stump is the seed of hope for Israel. And if you're Israel, you're like, how about you just not destroy us? Why do we have to go there? Isaiah 11, 1. 
mean, you'd be asking yourself, how can, that, how can that be hopeful? How can that image of the charred stump, a scale, a charcoal, all of it, the ugliness of it, how could there be hope there? Verse 11, or verse 1 of chapter 11, Isaiah says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit. In other words, this is, this is a really vivid picture of a massive stump uh, that is charred, good for nothing, something you would just leave in the woods. And he says, no, don't leave that. I'm going to keep my promises from this charred, this charred people, the people that have run from me, who have rejected me, who have hated me, who have rejected the people that I've sent to them. That, starred, that, that scarred chump, uh, uh, stump, I will not forget my promises. And because I won't forget my promises, a green little shoot is gonna come up. That's what we're talking like a little sapling. And that sapling is gonna be a shoot from Jesse. Who was Jesse, Bible scholars? David's dad. David's dad. Was, so a shoot from Jesse, then someone from the line of David, King David, King David's dead, so it's gonna have to be someone better or it's gonna be the Messiah. What, what Isaiah is saying, if you look, if you're willing to trust me, Israel, from the scarred, um, uh, stump that will be your lives. If you're willing to trust me, hope will come. Isaiah 11, verse two, the next verse, the, the, the character of this shoot, what will this, what will this person be like? And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. What God is saying is, listen, listen, I know Israel. I know you're gonna hate this. And I know there's gonna be moments in the future where you think there is no hope, where you're trying to rebuild the walls and, 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 and you're trying to protect yourself. And all you've got is 100,000 scrappy people who've been returning from exile. You're have to trust that what I'm saying is going to happen. And he's saying to Israel, listen, I promise you, even though you're in this condition, I have not forgotten about you. I've not forgotten about my promises to you. I will not relent in my love for you. Regardless of how much you run from me, my promises are still good because my character is sure and my love for you never changes. That's all in one stump. That's all, like, that's all like one little shoot of a, of a thing. Even though it's hopeless, Hope is coming. Even though it looks like I've forgotten, I'm still working. Even though, even though you don't have a king, the greater one you've always wanted is coming. Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall, and shall call his name Emmanuel. It gets better. Israel. The Messiah is going to be so easy to find because he's going to be born of a virgin. And you know what doesn't happen very often? <laughs> Look for the guy who says he was born of a virgin. Isaiah 40, verse 5. We see that the king is going to reveal the glory of the Lord. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together. The Lord has spoken that unlike every other king, Israel, the king that is to come will be the revealer of the glory of the Lord to all people. That all people, when they see this king, will see God's glory revealed. Doesn't mean they'll believe it, but he will be the embodiment of all the goodness, the grace, the mercy, and the power, and the glory of God will be bound up in this person. But wait, there's more. Isaiah 61.1. Now the spirit of the Lord 
of God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor and he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. The king's rule will be marked by wisdom from God, the spirit in his presence, but also the proclamation of good news that those who are poor in spirit will finally have their salvation, that the brokenhearted will finally have their comfort, the captives will finally have their freedom, the bound in prison will be released. This good king brings liberation and hope and comfort and salvation He brings freedom and not captivity, comfort and not grief, salvation and not slavery, peace and not trouble. And it just continues on like an infomercial. But wait, there's more. Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. Surely this is the character of the king. What will he be like? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. This coming king doesn't accomplish all of that freedom and proclamation through conquering and war and and, and harsh taxation and harsh punishment. He does it by taking his kingdom's rebellion and sin upon him, and he dies in their place because of their sin. He is crushed and pierced in their place, and he's crushed and pierced because of them. The king conquers, not by might, but by sacrifice. This king is unlike any king to come which leads us to Isaiah 62 and 3. This part of Isaiah envisions the return of the king. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and a thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. What a, what a poetic view here. That in the future, when darkness seems to cover the face of the earth, when hope seems lost, when the worst parts of humanity are on display in every country, in every avenue, the coming of the king will be as bright as day. And every king will acknowledge that that king is king. And he will come and bring brightness and hope. If the book of Isaiah is anything, It's an invitation to repentance and to hope. It's an invitation to the people of Israel and it's an invitation to us to trust in his unchanging character, to trust in his unchanging word, to trust in his perfect timing, to trust in his abundance grace, to trust in his never-ending mercy. And what I love about our position today is we have something Israel didn't have when this was written. We have Jesus We have the resurrection. We saw the prophecies fulfilled. We see uh, the New Testament. We see the Gospels and Acts and Romans and the, the, the progression of the church. We have all of that to look back and say, God kept his promises. Everything he said 800 years before Christ came, came true to the letter. He is trustworthy. Why? Because everything he says is true and it comes true at just the right time in just the right place for his glory and our good. Our good. It was Jesus who was born of a virgin, who was guided by the Spirit, who proclaimed freedom to the captives, who sacrificed himself on a cross. It is Jesus who rose from the dead. And church, it is Jesus who will return. And we can take that to the bank. Hope. It all matters on who you give your hope to. It all matters who you give your hope to. If you give it to God, you will never be disappointed. His timing is always good. He always makes good on his promises. His word is always sure. 
two quick takeaways for us. You ready? Two quick takeaways. And then we're done. Number one, we need to take faith seriously. And take faith seriously. Israel didn't take faith seriously. They lived as hypocrites. And it cost them. They didn't give up their idols. They didn't give up their worthless pursuits. And so I want to say this to, to some of you in the room. I don't know who you are. But I do believe part of my job today is to function as Isaiah to some of you. Who I don't know where you're at, but I know for some reason you came to church this morning. Maybe your mom dragged you here. Maybe you just saw the sign and walked in. But part of the function of you coming to this church is you to know this, that you are created by God. And that your sin that is in your life needs to be atoned for and Christ atoned for that. He died on the cross in your place for your sins and rose from the dead that you might know new life now and eternal life after death. And look, look, God is slow to anger, but justice comes. You don't know the days of your life. God does. If you are here and you don't know the Lord, confess your need for him, repent and trust in Jesus for your salvation. Without him, there is no hope. There's no hope. For some of us in the room, the message is a little different. God is calling you to repent and rejoin him. Uh, that many of us in the room at different points in our lives, maybe even in this life, are living like whitewashed tombs, going through perfunctory religious actions, crossing off the list, not thinking of God in our normal lives, not having the wisdom of God affect anything. We've lived as hypocrites. We have let idols linger in our lives that we know about. Sin has been killing your relationship with the Lord. <laughs> and we have not trusted the Lord with our future at work or with our future with our kids. That we have, we have chosen anxiety and, and worry-filled nights instead of trusting the Lord. Take your faith seriously, church. Take your faith seriously. Do not be a whitewashed tomb. There is no profit in it, only judgment. You know what a great part of that is? When you do this genuinely, all there is is peace and joy. Like that's, that's the exchange. Judgment or peace and joy. Choose peace and joy. <laughs> this is like the greatest part about this. Like, sure, we need to know that judgment is a possibility, but when you choose Jesus, when you follow him, when you pick up your cross and deny yourself and follow him, sure, it's hard, but you have everything that God has designed for you, and there could be no greater joy than following Jesus Christ for the rest of your life. Take your faith seriously, Christian. Also, Take hope seriously. I said this in the first service. I think there's nothing more sad than a cynical Christian. I just do. One who says, I've been saved, but I just have a hard time. I'm cynical about God's promises, about hope, about his ability to save, about his ability to change. I'm, like, I've just seen too much. The world's too broken. I want to say this. If Jesus rose from the dead, hope can invade the darkest parts of your life. It means that there is no one who is too far gone to be forgiven. It means nothing you've done can't be forgiven. It means there's no part of your life, no matter how dark, no matter how bad, how regretful, that the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ can't invade and transform. This is beautiful. This is all of the hope, all of our fight against sin, all of our fight for holiness and marriages, all of our fight for endurance and parenting, all of our fight for purpose and meaning in life, all of our fight for good Christian friends, all of this, whatever we're fighting for, whatever we're fighting for in a holiness is 
fueled by the hope of the resurrection that all is not well, but all will be well. What great truth, what great hope. And so at the end of the movie, Shawshank Redemption, if you haven't, haven't seen it, I'm gonna spoil it. It's been out 25 years, this is your fault. He gets out of prison. It's more dramatic than that, but he gets out of prison. (laughs) And he made a promise to Red, if I get out of prison, uh, I want you to go to this tree in this meadow and I want you to find this volcanic rock and uh, under this rock, it has no business being there and pull out this tin and under that tin, uh, there's some money and so Red gets out, he gets parole, goes under this tree, digs it up and there it is. The letter from Andy and a bunch of cash, meet me at Cehuantaneo, Mexico, right? Part of the letter says this. Remember, Red, hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. Jesus rose from the grave. Like, hope cannot die because he's not dead. Will we trust God enough to cultivate hope in the areas of our life where we've lost it? Will we trust God enough to cultivate hope where cynicism has taken root? Look, God loves cynical, or no, not God. Satan loves cynical Christians. He does. Loves it when you doubt God. Loves it when you say God can't do this and won't do that. Loves it when you've lost hope. Will we trust in God enough to allow hope to overtake our lives? Let's pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you that that you are the God who keeps his promises. That the worst parts of who we are can be forgiven. God, that, 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 that your return, Jesus, is imminent. God, help us to have hope and a vigorous faith that, that responds to that. God, help us as we live in tension with the darkness, with wars and rumors of wars and divorces and abuse and and all of the brokenness of the world, God, help us not be cynical about you and your redemption. With the truth of the resurrection, that your son rose from the dead and put a clock, a countdown clock on the end of brokenness. Would you help us to hope for that time? Not be earthly minded, but be heavenly minded. To hope in you, hope in your power and your promises. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon podcast from Church at the Gates. For more information about our church or to connect with us about what you've just heard, please visit churchinmissoula.com.